the Magic Book Club podcast. Hello, thanks for listening to the Magic Book Club podcast. My name's Tom Price. Thank you very much to Richard Allenson for taking over the reins for a week. Now, uh, this week, we have got a brilliant crime author. His name is James Oswald. He wrote the Inspector McLean stories, brilliant books like Natural Causes, uh, The Hangman's Song, Dead Men's Bones was huge as well. Really, really great thriller reads. And he's got a new one out. It's called No Time to Cry. It's got a new hero called Constance Fairchild, who is a posh lady who went to boarding school. Which, of course, must be easy for James Oswald to draw on. Uh, let's meet him now, shall we? James Oswald, thank you very much for joining us here at Magic Book Club. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here. I- I'm slightly torn because the fact is, I've been reading uh, No Time to Cry and I'm 50 pages from the end. Ah. I so I try not to give anything away. Then. Well, yeah, obviously don't give anything away, but also I'm slightly like, you know when you're reading a really great book and everything else that happens is a bit of a distraction and you just want to go home and read the book. So now I find myself just wanting to read the book, but at the same time with the man who wrote the book. It's a very strange moment <laughs> Well, I can go away for half an hour. If you, you can <laughs> It's 50 pages. I'm going to need about two hours, to be honest, to read very slowly. Um, it's a great book. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and it's a, it's a new start, right? Constance Fairchild. This is yes, a, she's a new character. Um, I've written... Another series, I'm still continuing to write the series with a, an Edinburgh-based detective. This is Inspector McLean? Inspector McLean. Yeah. Um, so there's eight books in that series, ninth book coming out next year. Okay. Um, and I've got a tenth in my head. All right, let's um, have a which look. Is getting in oh, the, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it's good, it's that's getting good. in the way because I'm writing book two of the Constance mm. series at the moment. What made you decide to start a new series then? Boredom with McLean or...? Not so much boredom. Um, I, I have, because as well as the McLean books, I've written a fantasy series, um, sort of Dragons and Magic and, and Game of Thrones type thing. Oh, it was The Ballad of Sir Benfro. Yeah. And uh, um, when I was, I was writing like a McLean book and then a Ballad of Sir Benfro book and then another McLean book, and it was a good break because yeah. they're two very different things. Uh, the fantasy series came to an end... And I, I'd written like three McLean books back to back. Mm. And I was getting to this point where I'd start writing a scene where he was having an argument with his boss or he was you know, talking to some, interviewing some suspect in the interview room. I was thinking, I've, I've written this scene already in this book. <laughs> or was that the last book? Or the book before? <laughs> and, and, I, and, and it was all just jumbled up in my head. So yeah. I, I wanted that break to do one book, then another book, and then another book, and then a different series. You don't write more than one book at a time, do you? Not really, no. no. I could quite often editing one book whilst writing another. It must be so and confusing. doing publicity on a third. So, yeah, that does my head in a bit. <laughs> right, OK. So, this is Constance Fairchild. Um, this is the one where she goes looking for the missing girl, just to let you know it's that yep. one, OK? Yeah, oh, right. Yes. Uh, you were, okay. <laughs> Got you. OK, she spends lots of time in a beaten-up old Volvo. Um, and also, crucially, you've decided to write a, a woman. Was that, I mean, is that a big shift? Was that difficult? What challenges did that present? It was the biggest challenge, I think, was um, trying to avoid what they call the male gaze. Mm. I've read so many um, male writers writing female characters and they focus on the female body, particular parts of the female anatomy, somewhat obsessively, mm. um, which women don't do. No, of course you not. Know. Uh, and and I, so I read, the, I read a few bad examples and thought, no, I'm just not going to do that. Mm. And the other thing I found really quite helpful was, um, weirdly... Twitter. I've got a lot of women followers and friends on Twitter and Facebook, and you just list, read what they're saying and listen to what they're saying, and that's their everyday life. Mm. And you just incorporate that into the book. It's amazing how many writers come on here and, and talk about Twitter within the first sort of five or ten minutes. It's, yeah, I'm sorry about. That. No, 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 no. I'm just. I'm interested it's, in. Is this a big moment for for our writers that they've suddenly tapped into new people and experiences, and their brains are just exploding with all because. 
That's what Twitter is, isn't it? It's fireworks of ideas constantly. When it's when it's good, it's very, very good. Yes. Say, because it does... Otherwise, you know, we're... I think as the dedication in, in there is um, to my readers without whom I'd just be shouting at cows. <laughs> yeah, I like that, I, I like that I a lot. Spend, to be clear, uh, you're a cow farmer. I, I, am, I am a far, livestock farmer. <laughs> but just a widow who walks yeah. past cows. <laughs> <I just, laughs> you cows. Uh, but, um, yeah, the, 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 the problem is writers do tend to be solitary people. And we, we, we spend a lot of time with our own thoughts. And Twitter's an easier way of interacting with other people than going out into the wide world. Um, and the only problem with it is it's a massive time sink. And if you're struggling with a with a scene, you're writing away, and it's the temptation just to open Gosh. another window. And, yeah. and, and you think, oh, just five minutes, and two hours later, you're <laughs> it's, still there. You fall into it. A, a time yeah. sink is exactly that. You fall into a Twitter hole, and yeah, it's got its downside. But I just think that the influences that we've all been given through Twitter and the people we've met as well, the friends we've made on Twitter, mm -hmm. have, you know... I think the, the, the big problem with it on the downside is that it's opened a lot of people's eyes to what's going on in the world and some people don't like having their eyes open so they get angry about it. Mm. And that's why there's a lot of vitriol mm. on Twitter as well. But then we come to your books to escape. That's what it, it feels well, like. Exactly. Why are we so... You must have been asked this question thousands of times and apologies for this, but why are we so comforted by crime novels? What is that? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of... You're reading a book about a crime novel, you're in control... Of, of the horrible things that are happening because you can put it down or you'll get to the end and it's finished and it's done with. Um, and however horrible we are to our characters, it's fiction. Yeah. Um, I think I'm slightly worried about the people who read a lot of true crime because that's a bit weird. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, we might but, cut that bit out just in case James suddenly gets loads of vitriol on Twitter. Having said that. But yes, I agree with you. I'm not into that at all. I've never read any yeah. true crime stuff. Um, and I'm actually incredibly squeamish. You wouldn't believe it from reading some No, I think that's books. a lie. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I don't quite faint at the sight of blood, but I'd really rather not see it if I can avoid it. Right. Um, and, but people do seem to take a lot of comfort from um, that control over scenes of discomfort and, and, mm. and whatever. Yeah. I think that's probably what it is. It's more yeah. than anything else. I hope that's what it is because otherwise everyone's really sick in the head. Very dark. And the Scandinavians are extra especially mm. sick and dark. Are you influenced by people? Do you, do, you, do you read many sort of other crime writers or do you... I don't read that much crime fiction. I get sent an awful lot of books by editors hoping that I'll say nice things about them and they can put it on the cover. Yeah. Uh, and I try to read them, but I don't get that much time. I, just, I, run, I run a livestock farm during the day and I write at night and I don't have much time to read. You have to talk about this. This is so... I mean, not ridiculous, that's not the right word, but you're basically moonlighting as a novelist. You are a ludicrously successful novelist and yet you're actually, your day job, you're a farmer. Yeah, I... Um, it's, a, it's an odd diversification yeah, from agriculture. Lee Child's not a bus driver. <laughs> I mean, what, why, did you, why did you start the agricultural thing? Well, I, um, my father farmed for many years um, in a farm in northeast Fife. Um, I didn't grow up on, on a farm. Um, he Actually, he grew up on a farm even further north in Scotland, but that was the family farm had to be sold when he was about 16. Mm -hmm. So he went and worked in London for um, many years, which is why I don't sound like I'm from Fife. Okay. Because um, I grew up in Bishop Stortford. Right. Um, and I worked out. I worked very close to here, um, not that, you know, just down the road from here, about thirty years ago. What so did you do? I was well. I worked as temp. Did lots of temp jobs when I was at university. Yeah. Because um, my sister worked for a temping agency, so she got me loads of jobs, and that was based just up the road from here, from the offices here. So I worked in offices all around Golden Square and oh, yeah. over on the Strand and places. 
And at that stage, were you thinking writing, writing, writing? I was always... Well, I was obsessed with comics. I used to spend all the money I earned in Forbidden Planet, basically. Uh, um, I never earned any money. I never took any money back at the end of the, the long day, long back to university. It had yeah. all been spent. Yeah. And I always wanted to write comics. That's a really tough market to break into. Yeah. Uh, I, I had one um, Thug's Future Shock published by 2000 AD in 1993, and then there was a 20-year hiatus between that and my next published piece, which was Natural Causes, mm -hmm. the first Tony McLean book. Right. But I was always writing, uh, and I was working in and around agriculture, because by then my, my dad had moved up to Fife and taken on the farm in Fife. And he farmed that until he died. And when he died, I inherited it and took it on. And it was, I'd actually only been running it for about two or three years when the book suddenly took off. Yeah, uh, and I had to stop and think. Well, what am I going to do? Am I going to give up the farming? I don't really want to. It's family farm. I, I you know, I love doing it. Yeah. Um, what I have done is I've cut down the livestock numbers considerably, and rented out a lot of the grazing to neighbours. I see. So it's not full on as hard work as it, as, as you might imagine. Yeah, uh, and it actually complements the writing quite well because it's such a different thing. It's a, um, you know, it's it's physical. Um, but not hugely intellectual. So I can spend our, a couple of hours driving up and down the field in a tractor and thinking about the, the next scene in the book. Or so you have a notepad chapter. with you. Always have a notepad on my phone with a, um, you know, with a, um, with, with a voice memo thing on it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and yeah, just endlessly thinking up weird things. Whilst That's I'm brilliant. So if, if the cows see you pulled over, they're like, oh, we yeah. know, he's, he's killing someone. I did have... Um, one, there was one time where I very nearly ran down my neighbour in the tractor. I was go taking a bale of hay up the, up the hill on the tractor, and some big forks on the front of the, of the, of the tractor. And usually you, you lower the bale down because it's low centre of gravity and it's bumpy ground. If it's up, up in the air, the tractor can fall over. Mm. Uh, so I'd lowered it down, but you can't see where you're going at that point, which isn't a problem on a, on a farm track. But when you go onto the main road, yes. you need to lift it up so you can see it. But I, I, my head was full of... Of Tony McLean and murder and, and mayhem, and um, and uh, I, I forgot to lift it up, and I was going forward, and I just saw this car <laughs> reversing rapidly backwards up the hill because I'd nearly run into it. <laughs> Realised exactly. Well, that happens in this Constance Fairchild novel, doesn't it? Almost. Oh yes, there's a, there's, a, there's a horrible scene it's where away, yeah, obviously. yeah, where 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 um, yes, a, a Ford Escort comes off second best to a tractor. Let's, um, let's talk about this book, because I feel like we haven't done that enough. No, we haven't. No. Um, so it's out now, it's brand new. It's uh, Constance Fairchild. Um, she has, she's up against it, isn't she? She has lots of people early on, her bosses, her colleagues, her family as it transpires, really against her. She's really against the world, isn't she? She is, and I, and I, do, um, I do like to put my characters through the ringer. Mm. It's, it's really that. And, and I, I, I started off, I mean, Constance really came from the name, that was, that was the first first thing I thought about when I thought, I'm going to write another series. What have I got? All I had was Constance, and it was a conversation that I'd had with a, a, another writer many, many years ago about naming characters and giving yeah. them names that reflected their character so, and, and then maybe doing it ironically. So you could have someone who was a bit flighty and call them Constance, and you could call you know, someone who was really wanting to get on with stuff and you'd call them Patience mm. and things like that. And, and I always wanted to have a character called Constance, um, and but when it actually came to write her, I then thought, well, why is she called Constance? And it's that kind of that character name, that Grace name, and the sort of family that calls their children Constance and Benevolence and Ernest yes. and things like that. Yes. Is it's quite an aristocratic old 
family. Mm. And I and I and I was thinking about that and I was thinking, but actually she's she doesn't like that, so she's she's railed against that. So she's gone off to do something um, that her parents would hate, yeah. uh, and 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 so she is. She's. She, I kind of created her as a loner yeah. because of just everything coming out of that name. It's really interesting because inspectors often have the also the the protagonist of these crime novels. They've always got a flaw, haven't they? Whether mm. they're an alcoholic or whatever it is, it was almost like her flaw is. <laughs> being an aristocrat in terms of her blood because she does have this background. Yeah. It, it, it sticks with her all the time, doesn't it? It does. And however much you try to sh- shake off who you are, um, it's you know, you, it always comes back to haunt you. Mm. And without giving too much away, that that's a recurring theme in the next book um, because she's managed to keep her aristocratic background a, you know, an open secret, as it were. It's not really made much of it. Yeah. Um, but it becomes a big thing in the next book and she starts getting hounded about it, and um, which I'm having a lot of fun with. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, one of the things I love, one of the things that drew me into this sort of... Uh, this is kind of procedural. I don't even know what all these subgenres are, but this sort of book, I love in, in Henning Mankell's books, the Wallander series, you really get to know all the side characters. And I, in this book, I love um, Aunt Felicity. It's Aunt mm. Felicity, isn't it? I think she's great. Is she going? Is going to be more of them working together? Because I almost feel I like there's. Something in there. <laughs> I, I I like writing the character ensemble pieces. I mean, the the, yeah. the Inspector McLean books. Um, they're you know they're Inspector McLean, but it's all about him and and and, and the and the, the the people that he works with. And and my my fiction is always very much character driven. Yeah. Rather than plot driven, I don't plot at all. I'm rubbish at it. So how but do you plot? Do you I, plot I, it all out before? Or do you no, do it as you go? absolutely not. I, I I like the opening scene of that. I yeah. sat down and wrote that opening scene. I, I had. A a vague idea of what was going to happen and like that she was undercover and the, and the op went wrong yes. and stuff and I literally sat down and wrote that opening scene and once I got that opening scene it was then just a question of saying well what's going on How, what happens next and, and I literally write by the seat of my pants that, that must way. lead you into terrible problems it does yes <laughs> uh, but the, 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 the one trick that, that, that I, I learned early on um because because of writing that way is, is not to go back and change things until you finish the first draft. Okay. So I will I, I will write it and and I might decide halfway through the book that a character Jack at the beginning would be better off if he was a she and Jill. Mm. So I will make a little note in my notebook. Um, go back and change Jack into Jill. But from that point on, I'll carry on writing as if she was Jill yes. rather than he was Jack. I see. And I won't make that change until I get to the end. Yeah. So the, the the book evolves out of my telling it. to my. The, I think it was Terry Pratchett who said, your first draft is you telling the story to yourself. Right. And that is very much my first draft technique. Yeah. And some people, that's that's their plotting. Their, their first draft really is, is them plotting, creating a plan. Um, but I like to just write out full scenes and actually have the characters, the dialogue between the characters and and have that all really well fleshed out, because I find an awful lot of incidental things then lead on to more interesting plot developments later on. So you must so, find it exciting as you're going, then, if you're yeah, discovering I have it with us. exciting and terrifying, because yeah. I've got a deadline and I have no idea what's going on. Do you ever miss your deadlines? Um, I, I, I sort of almost <laughs> So sometimes. does, yes, constantly. Yes. Not, not badly, <laughs> not, not Douglas Adams bad. Oh, um, what was he famous for? It he was famous for. He said, "Well, his quote is, I, I, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they noises make as they go past.' Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, but yes, I, I, I think I may have missed by a couple of weeks here and there sometimes. Right. But right. usually, my deadlines are my own set deadlines that I've, 
because um, if I've if I'm writing a, a really rough first draft, I can't hand that into anyone. Mm. I've got to reread it. And how, do many, all how many drafts do you do? I do my first, yeah, really really rough telling myself the story draft, and then I will redraft based on the notes that I've made mm-hmm. and a, and a thorough read through of that, and that will get sent to my editor and my agent. My agent's very good at editing as well, okay. so the two of them will then give me feedback. And I'll do another structural draft from that. So that's right. three. And then it, at that point, usually my editor's fine with it. Mm. There might be a couple of tweaks needing done, but usually that then goes to the copy edits and everything. So mm. so really, three structural drafts. Okay. I don't have time to... I'm writing two books a year. I don't have time to do Are you using two books a year? Yeah. And, and the cattle? And the cattle and the sheep. Yeah. Any other jobs on the horizon or is that it for now? Um, I don't really... I would love... There's so many things I'd love to do, but... Um, uh, I, I love tinkering with old cars. I've got a classic Alfa Romeo that I haven't driven in five years because I don't have time to play with it. Okay. Uh, but if you do drive it, don't put a bale of hay in front of you. No, no, I have to oh. avoid that <laughs> request. Um, we have to ask you a few sort of standard questions that we ask you on the book club. Uh, first one is, you are writing away, beavering away. How late into the night do you work, by the way? I usually, well, I do work at night because I, I, I've got the farm during the day and I would tend to sit down after supper, so half past seven, eight o'clock, yeah. and write through till... 11 or midnight. Right, okay. It's not a huge chunk of time, but because I've been thinking about the book all day, and and another thing I usually try and do, if I can manage to get maybe a couple of hundred words done in the morning or the early afternoon, just to to set my brain going. Yeah. And then I can go and do all the farm stuff, and then when I sit down at 8 o'clock at night, it's all there, it's all percolated, Mm. and I can get the words out really quickly. That's a really good way of doing it. Mm. So you let your brain be all fertile during the day. It's the hardest thing is sitting down... And I know a lot of authors. This is a lot how a lot of authors have to work because they have day jobs and they have bills and things to pay, as we all do. The hardest thing is to sit down at eight o'clock at night, having not thought about the book until you sit down at eight o'clock at night, thinking I've got to force some words out now. Yeah. And uh, if I can, if I can cheat that by doing it, and it really does only have to be, you know, a couple of paragraphs or something, and it just sets me up. You feel like you've done something yeah. and you're mm. going towards it. Um, okay, uh, you are writing away late, late into the night, midnight, not that late. Um, who is the one person who's allowed to come in and interrupt you? Well, I, I only live with my partner, Barbara, and um, I don't have a policy of like closing the study door. If the door's closed, you can't come in okay. um, because um, then the dogs scratch at the door to be allowed in. So, <laughs> Um, so, I mean, she she does know if if if, if I'm on a writing binge, um, yeah. um, to only interrupt if it's steam really, coming off the keyboard. It's really important, um, but usually it's um, there's a cow on its back or something. Come and help. That is the thing um, with farms, isn't it? The, yeah. the crises mm. that can come at any time. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Desert Island Books. What is the one book, not one of your own, that you would take if you could go to Desert Island and just sit and read? What is the one book you'd take? I think I would take Guards, Guards by Terry Pratchett. Very nice indeed. James Oswald, the new book, No Time to Cry, a Constance Fairchild novel, is out now. Is it going to be TV, do you think? Do you think this has got TV I would it? love it to be TV. Um, there's nothing in the, in, in, in the offing. It, it, it's been shown to some production companies mm. um, and fingers crossed. Yeah, indeed. I have no idea who play Constance, but... No. Uh, That's the fun part to think of it, yeah, isn't it? I mean... Yeah. That can sort of develop as you keep writing it. Um, thank you so much. That was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. So there you go. That was me talking to James Oswald, who turned out to be quite a nice guy. Can you go to your podcast provider and give us a nice rating? Because I would appreciate that and I would love you forever. Uh, all right. Thanks. See you next time. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate.